All right, Pat, we've got the first of a couple episodes that where the, 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 the title is the most self-explanatory thing you'd possibly ever get. Season 4, Episode 8, The Mountain and the Viper, or as I like to call it, the beginning of the wrap-up for Season 4, getting us ready for the next couple of seasons of this show. you have anything to say before we get into this? Dom, I think the Talking TV family uh, that watches us here on Talking Thrones is going to agree with me that this episode should be called The Optometrist and the Viper. Yeah, not to, say, to say it the least in so many words. All that and more on tonight's episode of Talking Thrones. Oh, man. Well, after last week's, quite frankly, very surprising episode, I got to say, this episode was literally a whirlwind of emotions on the rewatch. This is always an episode that I look forward to just because of the end fight. And it's not quite a rear-loaded episode like Laws of Gods and Men or Lion in the Rose, where all the stuff happens in, like, the second half of the episode and the first half is kind of filler. There's some good stuff that happened in this episode, for sure. But... It's definitely not one that in hindsight I look back on. I think I'm going to look back on as fondly as I remember. I don't know. What's your take on that? You know, it's I will say watching this again, you know, this is like the third or fourth time I've seen this episode. And at this point, the the fight is really where it's at. You know, yeah. that's, that's oh, the moment sure. uh, that you really want to get to. Everything else is, you know, kind of beautiful setup for for the rest of the season. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's our wrapping things up or, or really just sort of, you know, getting things into place. But, um, yeah, the, the fight is just where all the, the basically spectacle is in this episode. Absolutely. It's where all the marbles are. It's, it's got everything that you love about game of Thrones. It's got kind of like, again, like the, the intrigue moment that's building you up towards what you think is a certain moment before it pulls the rug out from you at the last minute. And this one, it's kind of hard to top the red wedding, obviously, as far as this thing where you have such this idea in your head as far as what's going to happen. And then the ending comes around and it so shocks you out of it. You're like, Whoa, okay. Was not expecting that at all to happen. And this one will be in a much more, and closed setting again just the, the way when i think about reading this on the page just the complete shock and intrigue and how accurately it was portrayed and just really how gross it comes and really just the fact that it comes from one character's just gross overconfidence in himself ultimately it, it, it to me that that fight specifically there's a reason why people remember this episode because it, it's another one of those moments where when you think of what game of thrones represents both as far as like it shows identity this is what you think. These are the types of moments that you think of, you know? And what were you going to say? Oh, no, no. I, uh, basically, I was going to jump in and, and talk about, like, uh, the ending of the fight. You know, how inconclusive the fight is. But Tywin's just like, yeah, hey, uh, you know, Terry, and you're done. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, it, it's, pretty much. It's, it's, well, because the whole fight itself is just this battle of wills at the end of the day between Tywin and Tyrion. That's the beauty of it. It's, it's, you're getting it in twofold. It's this battle of wills between Tywin and Tyrion to see who ultimately can get the upper hand mentally, you know, because it, because it's really been this kind of mental game of chess ever since we kind of, ever since Tywin first came back to King's Landing at the beginning, at the end of season two, beginning of season 
three. And then you're also obviously getting the actual fight between the, you know, the titular Mountain of the Viper, where Oberyn is finally getting the chance to extract revenge or attempt to extract revenge for the wrong that has been committed against his family, both against the Mountain who actually carried out the deed and Tywin, who he has unconfirmed, uh, so, you know, uh, allegedly ordered the deed done as well. So, so you've got all this different tension going into the fight itself, which just makes it so beyond interesting and fascinating to watch. Problem is that we've got the first half of the episode, and we're into this phase that I like to call wrap-up phase, where season two did something similar to this, where because you had the ninth episode be this one completely enclosed battle sequence that takes place entirely in one location, they had to kind of use episode eight as their penultimate episode, and that caused like this kind of weird dissonance where some storylines ended in that episode, and then they really got wrapped up in the 10th episode, even though they were kind of already over. And I will say that this episode, I think, does a better job than season two, but there are definitely still a lot of weird feelings where it's like, okay, we kind of got to catch up on all the, you know, ancillary storylines that we, you know, that, that we kind of haven't been spending as much time with. You know, we kind of, we obviously spent some time in Marine. We have a great opening sequence in order to kick it off and kind of prepare us for next week's battle episode, for next week's big battle at the wall. Theon actually does something this episode. We wrap up the stuff in the veil, at least as far as Sansa goes. And there's one like kind of really kind of funny moment, sort of, with Arya that I, I kind of want to pick your brain on. But let's get started. Incredible, fantastic opening sequence, a like great buildup to it. You know, obviously, you know, you have the Moles Town. They're all chilling after a long, hard days of yeah, doing well, whatever yeah, it is they, they do in Moles well, Town. They're, they're uh, sort of kind of complaining to Gilly, right? You know, that right. she's not well, really. Well, the one Gilly girl her, is. Uh, yeah, that, that she's basically, hey, step up. You know, you got to do the work here. We're, we're kind of feeding you, we're giving you a house and all that type of stuff. And, and Gilly's the first one that kind of recognizes. Uh, something's wrong yeah, because she hears up. the the uh, bird calls and whatnot, and she realizes that you know those are kind of wildling calls, and you know it shouldn't be happening here in Molestown, but it is. And you know she basically grabs her uh, child and hides, hides, you know, in the the you know I don't know like a closet or something. But, something like that. Well, real yeah, quick, because I, I think the woman that was threatening her was kind of just like, oh, I'm drunk, so I'm going to just pick on this one girl because she's like, oh, supposedly not pulling her weight, even though she probably actually is pulling her weight. It's just a matter of, oh, she's she's an easy target kind of. You know, that's kind of what I saw yeah, that as. 100%. And I think it's like, just to give Molestown a little bit of character before right. we go ahead and slaughter everybody. Kill everyone. Uh, you know, because it, what is it? It's just basically the place where the Night's Watch come and, and it's sort right. of like their bordello or, right. or like their but they come uh, to take a load supply off. channel, you know, whatever. Um, you know, it's where the kind of youngest members uh, sneak off to have some fun. And, you know, it's just a nearby town. That's it. And, you know, the main thing is uh, here come the, the wildlings. They're south of the wall. They're kind of doing their raiding campaign. And it was just a matter of time before Molestown was on their list. Right, exactly. And and as as we see, you know, Egret obviously gives them a little bit of a pat. I don't know if that's the fact that she recognizes that Gilly's a wildling or just that she sees the baby. But whatever the case, Egret spares Gilly. I thought that was kind of a little bit. I was thought that was kind of a little bit of a cool moment. It's like, ha, John's girl and Sans girl. You know, they they're having like a little bit of a connect there. But it cuts to the Night's Watch, and you see John. Yeah, did, did they ever meet? Uh, no, Gilly never, and, and never. So never. yeah, they they. Yeah, she. So they wouldn't. Really know know, they wouldn't know. But I'm, so uh, I'm assuming that then that it's because of the baby, but also maybe because I I don't know. Maybe like it's like that wildlings have that kind of intuitive sense of each other, where they kind of like like there's a like an inherent difference between the people who live north of the wall and the people who live south of the wall. Or whatever the case may be, it cuts to the to the wall. It cuts to the wall. John, Sam, Gren, Pippin, uh, 
Dolores and are sitting there having drinks. They, they're they kind of stewing because obviously Sam's torn up because he thinks that he sentenced Gilly to death. Gren's pissed because they can't leave the wall in order to avenge the brothers that died. But John is kind of, you know, sending them all straight. And it's like, look, we we, we got to follow the rules. You know, I'm not saying that it was good what happened to them, but they they knew the stakes. They knew, you know, the brothers that died in the Molestown right there. Like, they knew what was up. And they, they hit Molestown. We're next. That, and John knows. Like, John, because, again, John is at this point. He's really getting set up to, um, you know, to be in this leadership position. He had much less screen time this season than I thought initially. Like, that, I thought that the Night's Watch storyline, like, obviously this is the beginning of, like, the Night's Watch, like, really starting to take precedence. But, like, I forgot they don't have as much screen time this season as I remember. But at the end of the day, they know. They're like, look, we've been prepping for this all season long. Ever since we got back from their quest north of the wall, you know, they, they kind of give Sam a little bit of words in order to coax him and, and make him feel better as far as how many things Gilly's actually survived. But they're like, yeah, look, at the end of the day, we can't worry about Gilly and the baby. We can't worry about the brothers we lost. We got to hunker down because we know next episode the battle is coming, you know, and it, it oh, man, one of my yeah, favorites, I, you know. I, I think, you know, for this season, yeah, the Night's Watch doesn't really have uh, too many uh, big storylines. Like, obviously, they go uh, up north to Craster's and the whole uh, storyline of burning the house down and, you know, getting rid of uh, sort of the deserters. The mutineers, yeah. Yeah, so that that sort of, like, holds us over for the, you know, first uh, half of the season, uh, you know, more. And then it all comes down to this battle at the wall, uh, which is a big episode. I'm looking forward to it yes. next week. But ultimately, you know, this season, um, you know, gives us enough of the wall to sort of continue the storyline. Uh, but they're not really ready to reveal the, you know, the major uh, right. uh, White Walker threat, you know, like right. how how big that threat is. And next season, you know, uh, if, if I remember correctly, is Hard Home. Yes. And that's where we really get the escalation of like White Walker's bad. Uh, we need to take care of this like right now. And uh, it really takes that Night's Watch storyline to the next level. So absolutely, you know, I agree. this season That'll... is still like simmering on the back burner, We're, like milking any of the right. drama that we can out of what's going on in the situation in the North. But next season is where they're ready to escalate things. Right, absolutely. It's getting there. We know that obviously, you know, after the Battle of the Wall, we have Stannis finally coming north. We have John being, next season, we have John being elected as Lord Commander and him finally beginning the expedition of starting to bring the Wildlings south. So, like, the Night's Watch is definitely getting set up for, like, something big over the next couple seasons. But for now, we just leave it at that for that great opening scene. Now let's cut into some of the actual main storylines we have. We start off in the north. With Moat Kylan, we're back with Theon and the Boltons. And Ramsay and Theon, they're finally enacting their long-awaited, long-stewing grand plan for in order to have, you know, Reek pose once again as Theon, <laughs> wear his Ironborn colors, walk in Listen, and convince the rest of the Ironborn to surrender. I, I, <laughs> and, I, I, like, come on. He, he, he walks in. He's, like, tremoring. He's got sweats. He's just, like, reading mm -hmm. from a script. It's just like... Uh, Ramsey Bolton believes that you should give up and hey, let I will you say, free. And convincing, <laughs> I will say, convincing performance for the most part. You know, like if it, uh, even I though don't it, know if it was because, like he, you know, like I said, like he's sweating. He's like, you know, just like well, it probably helps that the Ironborn soldier. And, well, it probably helps that all the Ironborn soldiers they are like slowly dying from disease like they've been stuck there for god only knows how long they've had absolutely no reinforcement from the sea not ever since that failed expedition uh you know of yara's a couple episodes a couple episodes ago in order to try and save theon they, they, they pretty much run out of food they probably had to eat some of their horses there you know which have probably True. been infected like that uh, they are the main thing is the the commander the one in charge that theon's talking to actually reads that, him like he, an open book 
He does. You know, 100%. I mean, he's, got that, he's, got, he's got that, what, 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 what is it called? You know, the, you know, the iron code or whatever it is that we, that we keep making fun of them for. You know, remain steadfast yeah, even to the point where it doesn't benefit listen, him. A one, one time out of 100, that code's going to work, and this was the time. <laughs> and, you know, one of the other person pays the iron price. Uh, because yeah, he problem just... is that that other person ends up paying the iron price for all of them. But I will say in yeah. this sequence, though, the big takeaway for me, obviously, besides Ramsey's speech, which is great, and like kind of how he continues to reaffirm to Theon, it's like, yes, you know who you are. You know, you always know who you are. You're reek, no matter who you pretend to be. And the thing that I think really affirms it is the fact of like when the guy like kind of breaks him down, and, 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 and the way that he starts stammering, and the way that like you start to see cracks in the fissure. Once again, like I, I still think that this is the absolute best performance-wise that Alfie Al acting-wise that Alfie Allen is. On the entire show this season just you know portraying just how broken theon is as a character and then the poor bastard the second in command who ends up killing the one captain and is like i, mean, oh, I yeah. clearly can't read oh it's, it's great i feel so bad for this guy because he's so desperate he kills the captain sticks an axe in his head and it's just like this paper it says if we surrender we get to go home and theon just kind of nods and the next scene is that same dude flayed and i'm just like yeah oh, it, it's man. it's Probably the best flayed makeup this show is ever going to produce, right? Easily. And, uh, really disturbing. Like, you know, you can definitely see every single thing, like those yep. ribs and oh, the ribs, man, it, the, it, the chest bumps, everything. Really, really good makeup effects. And, you know, I th <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, you know, why would you, you pay the iron price, right? You, you know, pay the iron it, price it, indeed. It, it, you wanted to believe something so bad that you were willing to put yourself in a bad position. Yes. And that's the definition of, you know, what the ironborn do. Yeah. Uh, they just do things despite the fact that it could get them killed. It doesn't matter. That's just who they are. Um, and you know, it's whatever they, they pay the consequences and we move on, you know, and there, there will always be more ironborn uh, to continue this hard life uh, that they decide that they're going to live. Yes, indeed. And as, as they show, you know, uh, Ramsey it, it ends up benefiting them. You know, Ramsey, the kind of I, I love I love how Ramsey just like, kind of reminds me. It's like, yeah, well, we, we had to maintain our principles. You know, what would we be without them? You know, and then obviously they meet up with Roos's army. It's a really interesting shot that we have Ramsey's army in front of Roos's army, you know, kind of a, a micro like escalation of the of the tension that's going to come from them over the next couple of seasons. They meet up with them. Uh, Ramsey presents his father with uh, the flag. You know, Roos seems just a little bit impressed. Like, okay, I didn't think much that you would be able to do this, but you did. And so he kind of brings him over and kind of affirms him. It was like, all right, so now that you've officially been made my heir, you know, look over there. It's like, what do you see? And I'm like, he's like, well, this is the best hills, part. It, it, Ramsey's just like, he hills, yeah, trees and, You're right. and all this. And then he's like, no, look again. And he's like, no, I see nothing. <laughs> you know, like that's the greatest thing that Ramsey it's, says. It's fucking hilarious. It's 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 great yeah. it, because it's so comedic, but it also instills so much. Which is that Roos of the it shows the difference between them. Which is that Roos ultimately at the end of the day is, despite being a Bolton, he is the tactician. He sees the grand overall view. He understands that now that they have now that they've you know dealt with this micro problem of the Ironborn and Moat Kyla, now that effectively forcing all the Ironborn out, they understand that they now control the North. And as he says, even though you know they are technically in alliance with the Lannisters, he understands that you know now that they have taken back the north essentially with no help from the lannisters as well they now control the largest of the seven kingdoms he even yeah, says it's like it, yeah it's, it's larger than any it, of the it's other like seven 400 kingdoms. miles this way 300 miles that way right it, it essentially it's basically like they rule new york state you know like essentially. They, 
they basically have that big of an area. I feel like a more accurate um, description would be Texas, maybe, only because Texas no, is bigger I think Texas, I, I, Yeah, I think Texas, uh, we'd have to look at the map and see the mileage, right. but I, I believe New York State fits the description of, like, 400 miles. Like, Close Texas enough. might yeah. actually be bigger. Uh, but, like, you know, that, that speaks volumes about the rest of the kingdom. It's the description people-wise, too. They are, you know. Um, so, you know, I think the main thing is, regardless of what it compares to in the real world, uh, the main thing is Rus really values having control over the vast lands. And, you know, the idea Ramsey kind of has this more like very narrow minded view as far as he really can't see past like his next torture or his next kill. Yeah, I I think Ramsey is it's more about, you know, uh, what he thinks power is. Right. Because. Uh, Roos thinks, you know, owning the most land is going to position them uh, to have the most power over the rest of the kingdoms. But I don't think Ramsey necessarily sees it that way. Um, you know, it's it's he's going to it's I think it's his cunning, his sadistic nature, uh, you know, what he's willing to do on the battlefield. I think those are the things that he thinks uh, really garners him power. Yes, absolutely, and, and and it shows obviously in the next couple of seasons. You see, as you see the differences between the two as they clash, and ultimately it's their kind of their fracturing of their relationship and kind of where one values power over the other that kind of leads to the destabilization of the Bolton regime. Uh, but it ends with them. They've officially they've conquered the North. The Boltons are officially the new wardens, the liege lords of the North, and it ends with them officially moving into Winterfell. Let's cut to Meereen, where, again, we're in another wrap-up phase. And once again, we cut to, you know, we got Danny and Dario last week. So now this week, we get the other love story in Meereen. More of Grey Worm staring creepily at Miss Sadday as they bathe. (laughs) Listen, listen. Oh, Um, man. The only thing worth saying here is the conversation between Daenerys and Miss Sadday. Listen, dude, like, just the whole idea is, like, have you ever thought about... uh, did, did they take everything with the, the you know, the, uh, you know, like how how quick oh. is Grey Worm still? Oh my uh, Did they take God. the pillar and the stones? Uh, the pillar you know? and the stones? Does he have anything it's, to work with here? Yeah, I think I I, I kind of love just like the the just how um, you know intimate they get with the conversation. You know, this is sort of a nice sweet scene of of you know two young women sort of. Uh, you know, being uh, kind of blunt with <laughs> what they're working with here. And, you know, they're still trying to have some sort of uh, power dynamic between the two of them, right? They they kind of, you know, they can't just be crude. You know, they have to sort of, uh, you know, be civilized. But, you know, it it's just shows sort of them being comfortable with each other, uh, personable, and, and basically having this, right. like, you know, uh, friendship uh, that Daenerys really doesn't express with anybody else. So uh, they're really confidants, you know, and like where uh, Dario this season essentially became, you know, sort of uh, her lover, but like, you know, really just the the boy toy, so to speak, you know, it's like she's controlling him uh, through, you know, his basically uh, desire for her. Um, so she's, she's, you know, growing, uh, these personal relationships with the people that are around her and we're getting these like really specific scenes, uh, that, that show like the, the dynamic between her and her followers. And I I think it's really good that they started peppering that in, in this season, 
despite the fact that, you know, she's sort of just like sitting there hanging out in Marine doing yeah, not it, much story wise. Yeah, it's definitely more so, like I said, it's the establishment of her learning to be a queen in every single aspect of the ward, including with her followers as well as her subjects, you know, her immediate small council and how that's established here as far as her, you know, continuing to bond with Miss Sandy and then how that kind of transcended to Miss Sandy's conversation later on with Grey Worm. They kind of have a little bit of a repeat of the discussion that they had, a, you know, a couple episodes back when Grey Worm first led the invasion of Marine, where they, she's like, uh, you know, she. She tries to comfort him over the fact of, you know, when, you know, when he lost his manhood, you know, when he was cut when he was a kid. And he he once again admonishes the fact of it's like, you know, any if, if none of that had happened to me, I wouldn't be where I am today. You know, but more more stuff like that. But the, the real centerpiece of this episode is the, the, the jar reveal and banishment, which. Yeah, which is great. You know, right. it's, it's some right. kid just runs up. Hey, Sir Paris. Hey, I, I just, I just right. happened to find this pardon on the side of the Jorah, road. I love how Jorah knows <laughs> exactly what this is. Like, kind of on a little bit on Barrison too, where Barrison should wise up and understand exactly what this is. You know, and and how Jorah once again kind of showing how Jorah might still be better equipped to serve her than Barrison, which it's yeah. it's still a big problem that I have with just the treatment that the create that that. Benny Off and Weiss took Windsor Barrison in the in, in the show versus the book, where in the show they show that even though he is still very effective, he's he's old and he's not as equipped as he may well think. And we see how that pans out later. So he's yeah, I, I'm in. just really surprised that this storyline is like just a couple flash scenes because Barrison goes up to Jorah and he's like, I right. just wanted to speak to you man to man first. And, you know, I think the fact of the matter is like um, he's right to say you'll never be alone with her again. But. Why doesn't Barrison sort of, you know, keep this on the down low right. and be like, I'm, wa want to keep I'm watching you type of thing. Right, exactly. Like, kinda, it would more so you know, be like, extend the storyline. Right, look, like he's been with them long enough. Like, I feel like if Jorah would have made a move, he would have. You know, why, like, immediately bring this up? And this is a point where I'm going to get to because this is another change that they made from the books. And I'll explain exactly how. So, in the books, famously, when Danny meets Sir Barrison, like, before they move on Astapor or any of that, she's not aware of who Barrison is. Barrison is posing under a different name and he's serving as a squire to a freed slave character named Strong Belwas who actually was a former fighter in the Pits of Marine who is not included in the show at all like he's non-existent not a character in the show at all and for the longest time you don't know that it's Sir Barrison because he's going under a different name because he's because he doesn't he a was not aware he uh what's it called a he did serve on the small council in the books as opposed to in the show where he did not. So famously, he does know that Jorah is a traitor and he uses that position in order to kind of pursue his position and figure out whether Jorah is still trustworthy or not. And what happens is that there's kind of a big clashing where, you know, where Miro, Dario's former captain who we killed last season, actually escapes from Dario and tries to kill Daenerys and Barristan saves her and is forced to reveal himself when Jorah recognizes him. And because of that, Norla kind of stick a claim over Jorah for his own survival, he reveals Jorah's treachery and Danny in the moment, not really knowing who to trust, realizes that there's enough evidence to back up Barrison's claim that Jorah is a traitor and banishes Jorah subsequently, as opposed to this kind of nonsensical thing of where it's like, yeah, oh, I think it's of really quick, you know, and, right. and, uh, I, I think one of the things is like, I think Sir Barrison in the context of the show, like, right. you know, obviously there's no way that they could have, uh, you know, uh, double backed right. and reworked exactly because the they had already the made book. it clear that he hadn't um, served on the small council. Like they officially solidified that. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think the main thing is uh, what they could have done is like I'm watching you type of thing, and then just have like Jorah uh, be responsible for like messing up some sort of uh, uh, 
tactical event and right. embarrassing kind of comes out and says, Hey, you know, he maybe messed this up on purpose because right. look at this pardon that was delivered to me by some random child seeds, on the street. Um, it seems like the seeds are all there because he's literally looking at a map of Westeros. It's like he's planning like the invasion right there. It's like the seeds were literally laid there. And, but the, the one thing I will say is that uh, kind of as sloppy as the lead up to it is, the final revelation when she finally, when Daenerys does finally confront him is heartbreaking and probably the best performance that Ian Glenn has given on the show since oh, I, I, I think- inception. I think the performance in that scene is is great, but like um, just story wise, I, I don't really feel that right. uh, you would bar where does you would bar him at that point. Right, and, like and, where it, it makes no sense ultimately, and we kind of have to relegate that and kind of consider that as oh, it's she's making an emotional choice because she feels heartbroken because he's the first person that she ever really thought that she could trust. You know, her only connection to her homeland for the longest time. You know, so that's kind of really yeah. The but I wish it was more way on devastating. To her like you know if it was tied with uh, a strategic loss on the battlefield or something like that like then it has weight to it like right now as it stands it's like oh you mentioned that i had you know drogo's child right like that that's the biggest news that he betrayed her with you know right. it, it, like anybody could have you know told the folks in Westeros, this news, like it, Jorah just did it faster. Right. You know, like what, it, it, you know, if it wasn't, um, you know, that moment, it would have been like two months later. Right. You know, like it, it's, it's not really that big of a, a deal. Um, you know, at least from my point of view, it, it's obviously a security issue. Like, uh, you know, I wouldn't doubt that. Right. Um, but like, what are you going to do? You're just going to really keep your eye on him. You're going to limit right. his power. What, what, know, wouldn't it be smarter, if anything? It's where the kind of the whole adage, keep your friends close and your enemies closer kind of thing. Would it not be smarter to keep him close rather than send him out to the wolves where he could potentially become like a greater threat? Yeah, like it, it would have been better if, uh, you know, he did something so devastating and not, not even on purpose. Like it's, it, you know, just like they were outwitted or outsmarted, like whatever the case may be. Um, but it's like, then it's questionable, like your command, you know, it's not good enough. Right. Uh, then it would make sense, uh, for him to be banished, I think. But, you know, regardless, it, this is a minor detail. I think it's, you know, the television show is trying to be economical about this storyline. Like, let's just, you know, one and done let's you know do it right quick especially, sequence, because, especially because especially because they have to get Jorah out of quest. the way so that they can eventually like reunite him with Tyrion for the next season and arguably the last time that Tyrion's compelling as a character but this kind of also factors into a larger problem and it's more so of an overall broad problem that I have with the whole Daenerys arc rather than one specific moment which is the decision to not make the Quaith character from season two and ultimately the fact that she receives a lot more from the House of the Undying in the book version rather than what we got in Karth way back in season two, which is that in season two, in addition to all those different visions that she sees, she also receives a prophecy that says she'll be betrayed by three people. I forget what the reasons are, but it's like one for blood, one for one for love, and one for money or something like that. And the whole thing is that Jorah is revealed to be the first of the three people who betrayed her. And so it kind of is supposed to help build into more of her sense of, you know, her build to eventually being the Mad Queen, the fact that she's kind of like losing her mind a little bit by buying too much into fate because if anything I, and this is a larger problem that I have with the adaptation in general which is a large part of the books comes from the fact that so much of the story to me is based off of false or misunderstood prophecies where a lot of the things that Melisandre kind of builds and hypes up 
they end up coming true, but not in the way that she foresaw. And they kind of sort of try to do that next season with the Stannis defeat, but I don't think it's handled very well. And the fact that they chose to forego that completely from Daenerys' arc, I'm not going to say it's a bad decision, but it's the fact that when the, the picking and choosing of the certain things without the full context, I think is kind of what weighs it down and causes what are really emotionally impactful moments like these in the books to not really have the weight that they have because the, the Jorah betrayal, not only to me is it handled, like kind of it kind of comes out of nowhere where it's like, wow, okay, where it's kind of a moment of desperation and it's kind of all these different pieces coming together, but also the fact that she's dealing with so much in the moment that she really doesn't know how to react and it really is more of an emotional outburst rather than what seems to be a tactful and logistical decision, which is how it's presented here. It just, it, to me, it lends more weight and credence to the decision where the fact of, it, it, to me, I'm not going to say it wouldn't make more sense, but it makes more sense character-wise if she has this more of an emotional more as an emotional outburst based on um you know, you know based on kind of like rapidly extenuating circumstances out of her control as opposed to just this one thing of where it's like oh i have now received this news and now i'm going to banish you because i'm supposed to be hurt because that's what the scene calls for you know like that, that, those are the moments to me where it's like okay even as early as this like they, they were missing some to me at least some crucial pieces of that arc yeah, I, I think it just comes down to streamlining uh, what's happening in Marine. Like, you know, Daenerys is, is not the main focus of the show at this point. Right. Like, you know, obviously she's a beloved character by season four for sure. Like everybody really is behind her and wants to see what where this is going. But I, I think there's really just sort of the uh, she's on the back burner and, and like her quest is – you know, my understanding of the books, it's sort of like she just goes from place to place to place. And it's just sort of keeping her busy until uh, the end of the series when she eventually comes to Westeros. Obviously, right. uh, you know, it's not quite written yet. But like the fact is, um, you know, my understanding from just conversations with people that have read the books is that her plot line, although it's good in the books, is pretty thin, um, you know, and just to a certain uh, extent. Yes. It, yeah. the, the, so, the problem is that it gets, it gets cut off on a cliffhanger right when it is starting to get like really juicy and interesting. Yeah. So the, I think the main thing is like with the show, she's again also uh, put on like sort of the uh, periphery and, you know, it's, it's mainly just sort of she's there, you know, things are happening. Let's just, you know, uh, keep it short, simple to the point. And I, I don't think until we get Tyrion, you know, into the court that right. things, you know, start to develop a, a little more. And, you know, because they're really working now towards the whole aim towards Westeros. So I, I think, you know, for this particular season, it's like, you know, just quick bullet points, you know, and I think they, you know, we both agree that they dropped the ball on this one. Absolutely. I think you could have, you know, throughout the entire season you know, sort of set up some like doubt on Daenerys's end, you right. know, like, you know, maybe she doesn't trust any of her officers. Um, you know, maybe right. her whole affair with Dario thing is, right. is you know, uh, making Barristan and Jorah sort of uncomfortable. And right. uh, that makes the meetings between the three of them uncomfortable, you right. know, and, and there's some sort of tipping point where it's like, Jorah, now nah, get the hell out. Right, um, exactly. You know, and, and, and that I, is I definitely something really that does come that. Yeah, and really that does well. that does come from the books as well, where there is a certain point in the books where she's just looking around and she does not, even people who she knows she can trust, she just does not know who to trust because she's surrounded by so many new strange faces since settling into Marine that she literally, 
she literally does not know who to trust. So that that is definitely an instance where, again, the seats aren't quite laid yet because we haven't quite gotten to the Sons of the Harpy thing, which is, well, we'll, we'll get to that when we cover season five. But uh, the, like it, to me, it's, it really is the beginning of the end of, of the plot lines, which, like I said, we'll, we'll get to once we get to the very, very yeah. problematic season five in my but you mind. You know what, Dom? You know who should have showed up and, and really uh, been uh, Daenerys' rock? Littlefinger? No, no, no. Uh, Robin, Robin Aaron. Robin, Robin, Robin Aaron. Aaron. Your favorite character? Hey, listen, like, you know, uh, Littlefinger has decided this episode to send him on a little voyage. Yes, he has. Right? To, be, Finally, to become a man. So, but first, you know, he's got to get past his own trial, as we see. Yeah, why doesn't, you know, he could just very easily travel over to Essos and uh, saunder into Marine and, you know, really just uh, grow and become like the man he's meant to be. Would have been interesting. Would have been interesting to say the least. But we pick up like right. <laughs> well, we pick up like right immediately after Littlefinger is being interrogated by the Lords of the Vale. This is yeah. the first appearance that we get of uh, you know, Sir um, you know, Lord Lord. I don't remember the guy's first name, but Lord Royce, uh, portrayed by Rupert Vansittart, who we see in uh, every season up until the final season. He's kind of like the new, like kind of spearheaded co-ringleader of the Lords of the Vale, who I believe I believe the Vale is like the second oldest realm of the seven kingdoms and all of them. So, you know, they've, they've got their very prissy hoity toitiness. They very much established. They look down upon little fingers, nothing more than an up jumped grubby commoner. They even mentioned, it's like, Oh, your great grandfather, you know, he, yeah. he came from Bravos or something like that. And he's like, Listen, well, I suppose we all came from somewhere over the narrow sea. Dom, I, I, you know, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm zoning out a little bit. I'm thinking about like my fantasy casting for this oh scene. My God. Um, oh, the ball. Bob Odenkirk. Is no, no, not, not, not Bob Odenkirk. <laughs> Uh, although I, I think Bob Odenkirk would be great in this. Uh, Bob Odenkirk can do but, anything, man. Uh, no, mainly, you know, the cast of Law and Order SVU, right? Oh, God. Uh, uh, Chris have, Maloney? Yeah, Chris Maloney, Marissa Haggerty, like, you know, oh, uh, basically the whole entire. Get a little uh, Wolf up in here. Yeah, the, the detectives, and they're, they're grilling Littlefinger, and it's just, you know, uh, why lies that go through that door? You know, yeah, uh, you know, and they're so, like, well, uh, we don't believe you because you're a commoner. And so we're going to bring in the only other witness that we have. And the, the fact that they don't recognize Sansa, I'm like, kind yeah, of a little it, bit of a miss on their part where it's like, okay. really, really? This is one of the I things that's very interesting. This episode, you're not going to recognize Ned Stark and Catelyn Tully's daughter, like Lysa's so, own niece. So Sansa and Arya don't really get recognized. Right. Even the even the guards at the beginning of, of the castle, right? At the right. gates. It's like I'm Arya Stark and the guards like, I don't like, know, huh? you know. Like like that guy. Another obviously, flaw that I'll get to in this episode. For, yeah. His first day on the job, apparently. Clearly. You know, it's like he doesn't you know, remember any of the uh, you know right. allies? That I'll have to just fact checking later in. on and see if that's the same guard as it was all the way back in season one uh, when they <laughs> first approached. Because oh, if it is, big yikes on that guy's part. That guy's yeah, definitely yeah, going yeah. through a moon door of his own. But, like that guy's, uh, you know, career is, is fucking up on the job. Not, like not going not good. up. Not good. I guess. Well, he could fail upwards. I guess that, that's, if that's true. A thing that is true. Westeros. That is true. Um, but no, I, I I think it's one of those things where. Um, like, sure, you know, I, I think before they even see Sansa, they're just like, oh, you're traveling with somebody, you know, your niece or something like that. Uh, you know, and then it's like Littlefinger's like, I'll go fetch her. And it's like, no need, no, no need. need. Uh, we got her. We'd, we'd rather uh, you hear know, her. Like, what was it? So, we'd rather hear her testimony unadulterated. Exactly. So I, I don't think any of them in the room who are interrogating Littlefinger have even laid eyes upon her. 
Um, and you know, maybe it's like an elevated situation where like they see this, you know, red hair that's reminiscent of, of Catelyn, uh, and they don't even really put two and two together. It's like, they're really focused on the, the investigation. Uh, so I can believe that they don't really recognize Sansa in this, this moment. Um, but you know, it quickly leads to, uh, Sansa saying, I cannot lie, you know, uh, basically right. Littlefinger forced me to hide my identity. I'm Sansa Stark. And you know, it's really because, you know, not that he's a bad guy and he right. wanted to deceive you, but it's because Joffrey was like maybe his, you know, torture victim. And like he had to basically whisk me out of there and to protect me. He asked me to, you know, blah, 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 blah. And and she goes to town. Oh, you know, man. Or, or she goes well, to town. I'm, like, I'm, like, I'm like, give her the Oscar finger. right now. That is incredible. You know, how she how she was able to turn around and pull the wool over the Lords of the Vale right there. Like masterful. Like I said, she, she really learned from. From, from her her defense mechanism that she picked up in King's Landing. Yeah, but I, I would say that, you know, and, and this is the beauty of the scene, like uh, Littlefinger, you know, from the very beginning has sort of been whispering in Sansa's ear about, you know, how to play the Game of Thrones right. and uh, really preparing her. And, and like, I don't, I don't know what his thoughts are. Like, you know, it's like... His thoughts uh, are he's scared shitless because he realizes, oh shit, she's learning. Could she potentially be a future threat? Well, well, I th I think he's, you know, I think he does see Catelyn in Sansa. And so there is this little thing of like, oh, I should teach her my ways and how I think. Right. And so that way you know, she doesn't make the same mistakes that Catelyn didn't wind up dead. Exactly. And I think he's doing it for, you know, um, some sentimental reason. Uh, but ultimately, in the end, you know, it's like he basically smartens her up to how he acts, how he behaves. And this scene where it's like, you know, Sansa's like, I'm going to go with the devil I know and I know what you want. And, and Littlefinger's like, do you? Right. And it's like, ultimately, we, we realize like three more seasons uh, that Sansa does actually right. know uh, what Littlefinger wants and, right. and takes care of business because of all the hardships that she has been through. So I think the arc, you know, the right. sort of back and forth between Littlefinger and Sansa is really well done in this show because... You know, she is the pupil, and right. you know whatever she goes through. And then through, she eventually becomes uh, the Darth Vader. Learn. She becomes the Darth Vader. Once I was the student, <laughs> but now I am the master. When she pulls the one up chip on Littlefinger. If anything, well, like I said, this is kind of like I, I don't know if Vader's. Uh, that's probably not quite the, best the way to go example, because but... she would have to start oppressing people. That's true. Well, know, I, I just wanted to use that one comparison. But if anything, yeah, Sam's yeah, yeah, arc is kind of the flip. To me, to Daenerys's of where Daenerys's feels like it's missing pieces, but strangely enough, I do think that Sansa's is one of the more fully fleshed out arcs across, you know, the, the whole season five Ramsey thing, notwithstanding, because that feels like we're backtracking a little bit, but that really does feel like one of the more like, you know, accurate like fleshed out arcs as far as it's like, okay, she she had this idea of how the world worked, then she was stuck in this one place and kind of you know, but you know, given a reality check in the worst way possible that she was finally given it out. And then this one person kind of, you know, made his intentions a little bit too clear, which now allowed her to like start to understand the way that the world really works, but also how she could like manipulate it a little bit to work in her favor. Like all the pieces are there and it's like it is well done to me as far as that goes. And <clears throat> I still I can't get over Robin though. Like, oh, oh, the, oh it's incredible. Uh, like, the, the like, Winterfell mom, doesn't have mom, a moon door. Let my me mom fix mommy it. Said I can't leave the, um, can't leave it because I might die. No, but like last episode, him just destroying Winterfell and 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 Sansa slapping him. Like, I, I just you know I just can't get over it. But uh, uh, you know, Robin is you know that character that's been super protected. 
Um, and now that, you know, uh, Littlefinger is there, uh, he, he kind of brings up that moment where it's like, oh, Robin has to go out in the world. He has to, you know, live life. You know, he has right. to sort of, right. he can't just, you know. Well, first he uh, has that big conversation with the Lords of the Veil vale where he kind of holds him to task. And is like, yeah, you know, you you didn't defend your, you know, your own, you know, Lise, uh, you know, Lysa's own sister when she needed your help. And because of that, the Starks, kind of, you know, the Starks lost. Yeah. So unless you support the Lannisters, it's about time you guys like, kind of enter the fray. And again, exactly. he's like, kind of more so pushing his own buttons, you know, placing them behind Robin, showing it's like, yeah, he needs to like actually be brought up, like turn into a real Lord. Again, still keeping his kind of ambitions close to the vest because again, this is where they started to shift up and deviate a little bit away from the books but for the most part we're still pretty accurate uh for me the big takeaway here was just the fact that it's like him realizing that he both did and did not make the smart move with killing Lysa right in front of Sansa and placing all of his faith in Sansa because now Sansa has something on him and she knows it and little yeah, finger but uh yeah exactly and it's right. one of those things where the two of them are going to uh play off of each other right. and um, if anything, you know, real quick I, though, I, did, do you think that factors into his decision to give her to the bolt? Do you think that factors in at all into that decision? No, no. Uh, so I think one of the things is like you know the point I was trying to make about um, you know Robin is when he talks to him is the whole thing about you know people die left and right. You know you got to live your life and you got to uh, you know sort of go out there. Blah blah blah. I, I think that was the nature of it, and um, you know it, it's it's sort of talking to the nature of you know, the people that you surround yourself with, you know, and telling him to go out there and, and, you know, experience other things away from your mother. Um, you know, and then we have the flip side of like, you know, uh, Littlefinger and Sansa had this event where Littlefinger pushed Liza out the door and the two of them are, are linked and they actually go all in on sort of, you know, uh, making that connection. And, um, you know, I think it's one of those things where, when Sansa says, I know what you want, I, I think that's ultimately what leads to the decision. You know, Littlefinger is thinking, oh my, I need to send her away as well. Uh, and so I think that leads to the whole um, trade with the Boltons. Got it. Um, okay. You know, it, it could be uh, the case, right? Right. You know, well, um, because it just seemed to make too much sense as far as like, oh, Sansa's becoming a problem. I need to move her out of the way. Like, in hindsight, the more I think about it, it does make more sense. Just, I guess, in the moment, I was just so blindsided by the decision, obviously, because, again, the knowledge of the books and the decision to replace, you know, Jane Poole with Sansa there. <coughs> Definitely, for me, it kind of threw me off. But obviously, it ends with the badass Sansa walk. Like I said, a lot, a lot, taking down a peg a lot more in hindsight because of what comes after. But in the moment, I just remember seeing, like, yes, finally. No more of, like, you know, weak, pitiful Sansa. Finally, you know, we're going to get smart, brilliant, tactician Sansa. And far as we'd have to wait, like, at least another season for that. But, hey, at least we knew this was the beginning of that. But let's cut to the main centerpiece. It's the title of the episode. I don't know if they, if they were Vegas betting odds on this, but I have a feeling that they would probably have a field day with this. It's the Mountain versus the Viper. But first, it starts with yet another conversation between Tyrion and Jamie in their jail cell. And I want, and I want you to take a note, uh, t take note of what I have written in the notes. You look at the notes, the notes doc that I have right now. Oh, Pat? Yeah, I, I, I just looked at uh, apparently uh, the creators of the show were, were taking, taking shots shot at Orson, Orson Scott Card. And I always wondered, I'm like, <laughs> this conversation about this Orson Lannister. I'm like, what? I'm like, this, is, this doesn't seem like it fits at all. And then I found that out when I watched AI. It was it was the, this YouTuber that was ranking every episode of Game of Thrones, and he got to this episode and he talked about that. And I'm like, wait, 
that's where that came from because apparently Orson Scott Card, I don't remember if he criticized the books of the show, but apparently he criticized them and that was their petty revenge at them. I'm like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It, like, it, it's the scene is like, it's okay it's so, because I, mean, I, I, it's I think it's scene, but I think it's one of those things that uh, goes to speaking to Tyrion's uh, intellect, right? That. You know, when he was sitting there at the family meetings with Tywin and whatnot, and Tywin was going on and on about, like, you know, the family legacy for the 2000th time. Uh, here's Tyrion, you know, thinking about this cousin Orson and the Beatles and, right. um, you know, why. I love the line that he has where he's like, oh, as it turns out, a lot of books, uh, every book has been written a bit, has been written about great men, but far and too many, far too, far too few books have been written about morons. Yeah, there's that. And then also the other line is like, um, you know, uh, it, it was written on Orson's face. You know, I could read it like a book, but it was a language I didn't understand. Right. Um, you know, so there's a lot of interesting, you know, moments in this monologue. Right. Uh, and it, it it's one of those things where it's like your life is flashing before your eyes because you don't really think you're necessarily going to win this trial by combat. And, you know, this is the thing that comes up and it's really detailed. And, you know, hey, listen, I don't know about the uh Orson's Scott Card thing, but like if that's true, that's interesting. Um, you know, maybe maybe that's uh led to this being really well crafted and, and just like, you know, some of the, the nonsensical things that you think of just before facing right. almost certain death, you know, it, it's just something that gives Tyrion and Jamie some sort of uh you know shared heritage and, right. and like they understand who this Orson character is and um, they're just sort of like uh, giving each other insights into the past and how they reacted and, and something that they probably never have spoken about before. And it's a really intimate scene between brothers and, um, you know, right upon the, the moment before uh, Tyrion's got to go out there and, and watch his trial by combat and see if he lives or dies. And, you know, I think um, during the combat, you know, when Oberon is, uh, advancing and, and sort of looks like he has the upper hand. Like there's a big smirk on James' right. face. Uh, and and I, th I think, yeah, exactly. And I, I think like this shared moment beforehand in the prison cell, uh, you know, leads uh, to this really uh, nice moment later in the fight when it's like, oh my god, like you, you know, might actually win this. They, they're you know sort of like reminiscing and, and you know saying their goodbyes with this really roundabout story and, and just like cherishing their brotherhood. Right. Um, but they might, that might all be for not because, you know, he might actually get out of this and he might survive this trial. Right. And it's, it's, it's know, a great, it's, it, it, yeah, it is Hitchcockian. It is Hitchcockian tent. This whole sequence from that initial, regardless of the Orson Scott card references or digs or whatever, this whole sequence from that initial opening jail cell right to the end when the mountain pops over his head like a freaking gripe. It is a masterclass in Hitchcockian tension building because good lord, you are on... I've seen this fight more times than I can count between when I've watched it in the actual episode versus watching the clips on YouTube versus just replaying it in my head and every single time, I'm like, how the hell did he pull this off? Where... You, you know, after the initial discussion, you have the long walk down the hallway to him meeting with Oberyn. He's like, try, he's being like, you should wear armor. You should at least get a shield. 
you should, you know, you, you should shouldn't be drink, drinking. Should be drinking before a fight. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I mean, you had this many with this your great experience with fighting, you know. And then the mountain walks on, and Alaria is like, you're gonna fight that, and he's like, I'm gonna kill that, and he's like, that's the biggest man I've ever seen. It's just all the the, the beats are, yeah. and the bells and whistles are there. A lot of his great, and then Oberon gets his uh, spear and he flips it around. Right, er- everybody's right. cheering for Way him. Way too many cuts in that scene. Um, too, I will add. Way too many cuts. Yeah, you know it's, it it's bothers me things. the amount of cuts in that scene. I, I think I think the uh, hubris of Oberon, you know, obviously is what d- does him in in this sequence. And you know, I don't know if it necessarily uh, was well, you know, Warranted. set set up in this season. Uh, you know that he would be this obsessive because, um, you know, I understand it's like, oh, I'm going to seek revenge. I'm going to get my revenge, whatnot. Right. Um, but the he's confession, desperate. like you, like you said at, at at the end of last episode, it's the fact that he's overplaying his hand. He's he's desperate and he's an impatient. He's impatient too. Yeah, which is to, his biggest flaw. To me, I, I feel like you know maybe this isn't necessary, but to me, like if they had a scene uh, where Oberon, you know, sort of does confront the mountain and says, you know, you need to confess, and the mountain's like, I don't even know who you are, right? And like it, that kind of angers Oberon. And then when they get into the uh, the fight, you know, this whole thing about, you know, I'm going to make you confess. I'm going to make you confess. Um, I think it would be a little bit stronger. Uh, like, it, it's okay as it is. I, I think it works. But, um, you know, one of the things that really has always bothered me about this sequence is, you know, he basically has him dead. Dead to rights. Like, dead to rights. Like, because Oberon is just like, oh, my God, you know, you're dying. Which I, I, I guess I, I guess need you, you to you, confess. You, you could make the argument um, that that's the intent of the scene because, like I said, it's, it's beat for beat adapted from the books where, again, Oberon yeah, but, has him dead to rights. He's on the ground. He's dying. He's but he's, liter- he's literally dead. You literally know? dead. Like, All he had to do obviously, was finish the job. The mountain is so big that he he has a little bit of energy left in him right. that he sweeps him off his feet, grabs him by you know sort of like the right. the throat, the throat, knocks all his teeth him. out in one punch, and then you know basically squashes him. You and you know, can see, um, I love it. You can see the look on Oberon's face as he lifts him up and realizes, oh, I fucked up, and and everyone is yeah. just like, oh no. But then, as soon as as soon as Oberon is is finished, you know, basically the mountain is finished as well. It's so, finished as well. Uh, so. Both both combatants are dead. Right. And Literally. you know, I this is one of those things where like, uh, you know, it's a it's a, a sort of a, a representative metaphor here of of Tyrion and Tywin and how their wits are basically always at a stalemate. Right. Um. You know, and then basically Tywin just stands up and says, Tyrion, you're dead. Uh, you know, like, uh, and to me, it's it's like no one objects to this. Everyone's right. just like, yeah, no let's one go with raises it. Especially Jim. Um, I'm like, if anybody had a cause, it's like, oh, that, your dude's dead too. They literally killed yeah, each other. So, like, so, so basically. I guess, well, okay, I guess because the mountain's still breathing at the end of the fight, just barely, where he is over. Like, like Ty goes to the dead. king, I guess. You know, it, it's. I don't know. It's one of those things where uh, I, I never sat right with me. Yeah, it never sat right with right. me how this scene ends. Yeah, uh, it, just it, because it, it feels like you know uh, Tyrion should be like, oh, he shouldn't be like facing the death penalty right. or anything. Um, you know, I, if I any, anything, the, like keep him in prison because they don't know right. what to do. I, I guess just in know? the sense of where because the mountain is still 
faintly breathing. Like I said, the, the logistics of trial by combat are not really that great, probably because they've probably never had a situation like this because pretty much every single fight before it has probably had a definitive, very clear winner and loser, you know? But the one thing that I will say, like I said, to lead in a little bit of credence is the fact that the mountain is still breathing. And we also know Tyrion has no supporters on his side. We know how this goes. This is not a situation of where you can demand justice, quote unquote. It is all about who is in power. And the one in power right now is Tywin. So and, yeah. and, and Tyrion I, I think, played his last hand here. I, I think it would have been uh, you know, better for me if if the mountain sort of like, you know, stood up and like walked out of out of right, view and right. or at like, least limped out you know yeah he, he, he's on the ground like yeah like even if, even if like cersei you know like snapped her fingers to a couple right. people and they like dragged him out of there right and then i want to take it like th th <laughs> 30 guys just to get him out yeah. of there but the, then it's like you know he collapses um later on you know right. it's just to, I guess it's, it's a visual thing for me. If I'm remembering um, correctly, I think the thing is that, that he appeared much less wounded, physically wounded, because the whole thing is that Oberyn stabs him, but it's not meant to be a portrayed as a fatal stab. But the whole idea being that even though the mountain, I, th I think it's a, the sense that in the books, the mountain more so clearly wins the fight even though he's on the ground, but, but it seems like he can recover. But then later after the fact, it's that the poison killed him slowly versus here it's very apparent that he is not walking out of there you know yeah, yeah, yeah. i you know it, whatever it's it's i think mild you know my kind of criticisms with the the end of the fight uh ultimately at the end of the day it happens quickly like Tyrion, you're sentenced to death yeah and then Tyrion has that uh, one of the best one of the like, best just like uh <sighs> dumbfounded looks i've ever seen yeah. on an actress not face. even dumbfounded just like just um, more so just disappointment where it's like wow this dude yeah, but he, he's and, like, that's just... the shitty thing too is that oberon ultimately placed his own uh, the sh other shitty thing too about oberon's death is the fact that he ultimately he was doing this obviously for revenge. We know there was a double-edged sword here where he was both defending Tyrion but also getting his own revenge. And he ultimately placed, like you said, he placed himself before Tyrion in this instance and kind of forgot what he was doing rather than, you know, focusing on finishing the fight, which is obviously we know a mistake that Bronn would have been fortunate enough to be in that position would not have made. Bronn would have just finished the job because, like you said, Pat, Oberyn, was, in that instance, he may have been playing the game throughout the season, but he was not playing the game in that instance. And that was Yeah, that's for sure, 100%. And... You know, listen, it's it's one of those things where, like, Oberon knows that Tywin gave the order. Like, why does he need the mountain to why say Why does he need it? to like, hear of Tywin? Like it's, I think it's, it's more one of those just, things it's where... It's gratification more than anything else. It's the fact that he needs to hear from Tywin Lannister, the most powerful man in the realm, come, go, you know, come down to Oberon's level and admit that he is just as despicable as, you know, everyone rumors him to be, but nobody would actually say to his face. And he needed him to say that in public in front of everyone. And it was that, it was, again, that hubris that cost him. Yeah, and, you know, and... and... I don't know. It's it's one of those weird things. Like, so okay, weird. you're gonna start interrogating him in the the trial. Like, why not? Like, you know, stab him in both arms. Why not? You know, uh, like incapacitate the mountain for sure. Right. Like a hundred percent. Like, make sure that he's he's not a threat to you. That you know he's still living, but there's not going to be any of this kind of last minute shenanigans that ended up happening here. Exactly. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, it's it's one of those things where I guess I loved Oberon as a character so much, <laughs> you know, yeah, we all uh, did. that it, it's like it, it just seems like him dying in this moment 
um is it, so we feel so short we feel so short changed which again like I it's an like awesome I, death like oh, it's, absolutely. Gr- it's gruesome that in and of itself is great but if, if anything what i will levy that onto is not necessarily what happened in the moment but the fact that the the, the fact that this death this moment is supposed to set us up for the rest of the Dorn arc. And the fact that we know, everybody knows, regardless of how they adapted it in the book, just as far as how they wrote it for TV, they dropped the ball so hard on the rest of the Dorn arc yeah, that it, it kind of made listen, this moment feel even worse in hindsight. They get a top-tier actor to come in and play Oberon's brother, the king. Yes. Um, you know, Bashir Your favorite from guy, Deep Alexander, Space Nine. Alexander Sadiq, right? I, I, I yeah. believe he also had a couple episodes in The Expanse as well. Yeah, he he's an awesome actor, you know, d- doing a lot of sci-fi and obviously. And Farmer from Luther as Alaria, his paramour, they yeah. dropped the ball on her. They got three they got two very well pretty damn well-known actors for the th- two of the three Sand Snakes uh daughter. They oh, we, we'll save the rest of and how they screw over Dorn next season. Yeah, but I don't know. It, it it is one of those things where like Oberon's I I guess, you know, you're you're basically making a lot of sense to me, Dom, because uh, right. The fact that I know Dorn, you know, only goes so far in the seasons upcoming. Right. Is really and making they this have such like... a more int- and trust me, dude. Like, well, I'll save the Dorn plot and how badly they screwed it up by telling you, uh, you know, as far as, as as far as like what happens with Dorn in the books. Well, what, what once I tell you, I'm telling you, man. It, it might, I might convince you to go back and read the books because the way that they are set, <laughs> the way that they are setting up Dorn is Dorn is yeah. going to have a crucial and intrinsic part to play in the final conflict in the final two books if and whenever we get them that come out yeah. and the fact that they got so short change in the show is just one of a few things that the last four seasons get so wrong but that is it that is our recap of the mountain and the viper season four episode eight only two episodes left of season four make sure you guys tune in next weekend or next week rather for Oh, man. I know that Blackwater is the one that kind of set the precedent, but for we haven't gotten a big one-episode showcase battle in a while. And, oh, man, this is this was probably, like, my favorite episode of the initial match. It's one of my favorite episodes. The Watchers on the Wall, the Battle of the Wall that we get next episode. It's finally here. I cannot wait to cover it. You know, we're going to cover it scene by scene, sequence by sequence, similar to the way we did Blackwater two seasons ago. Can't wait. Pat, where can the good people follow you on the interwebs? Hey, listen, um, you know, here, right here on Talking Thrones, I'm speaking, uh, you know, with the Talking TV family. And, you know, it's, hey, you could just come back and, and listen to this and uh, hope you enjoy the show. Uh, if Just go through it again, you know, binge it. It, it, it is a, a great show for a reason. Um, you know, and then you can find me on Instagram at Patrick W. Huber. Uh, still haven't posted anything yet. Um, um, you know, uh, just whatever I, I will one day you're gonna have so I, many followers I, I by the time we're done with the show and then yeah, yeah, maybe this, that'll finally this, give you an impetus to post something i see what yeah, you're yeah, doing here it's very the, smart the, yeah, strategy this is, this is this is step one it, it's the you know <laughs> uh basically do an entire podcast you know uh saying hey here's my social media and then once it's over that's when i'm going to start posting so it's pretty smart you know it's pretty genius. It, yeah, yeah hey uh, share you know get your friends because it, it's coming after about eight seasons of uh, teasing, I'll post something. There will be a post. I love it. I love it. Of course, follow me at Movie Nerd Reviews across all platforms, and be sure to follow the podcast at ta- Official Talking TV Podcast across all major platforms. We're on Twitter now. Be sure to follow us there. Be sure to keep tuning into our Harry Potter first time watches that we're dropping on Mondays. We just dropped the Chamber of Secrets one. By the time this episode goes up this past Monday, Prisoner of Azkaban will be this upcoming Monday. And be sure to turn into a tune into our uh, Twitch the- stream, which will be the new home for our podcast going. For what were you going to make some crack about the last no, no, uh, was, about the say, shot of Prisoner of Azkaban? Yeah, yeah, your favorite the, shot in the movie, the freeze frame, the you freeze know, frame, your favorite. It, it, listen, it's your like, one flaw with the entire franchise. 
No, no, I, I don't think it's a flaw. I think it's great. But, uh, you know, other movies that used the freeze frame was uh, Rambo, First Blood. Um, you know, it's 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 a classic. <laughs> it's a classic uh, way to end a movie. I, oh, I, I really do think it's classy. So, uh, hey, you know, I, I'm all in on uh, The Prisoner of Azkaban. Let's do it. It's the best Harry Potter movie. You guys aren't going to want to miss that. And, of course, be sure to keep tuning in for new episodes of Talking Thrones every Friday on the Spotify and Apple podcast feed. And, as always, people, 12 seasons in a short film. I'd watch more fucking movies. Yeah, do see more to protect your time. eyes. Yeah. Indeed. That optometry, that's no joke. We'll see you guys next time.